Hey there, it's Bailey Hancock, career happiness strategist, creator of The One Year Career, and your host of The Bailey Hancock Show, a podcast that helps people figure out how to make big career moves with small steps. Navigating your career doesn't have to suck. I'm here to help you learn to love the process. Hey guys, Bailey Hancock here. Welcome back to The Bailey Hancock Show. Today, we have one of my fellow campers, and at this point, I don't know if you've heard from any of my other fellow camp friends. I think you have, but if not, camp was this magical place in the hills of Big Bear, California, where a bunch of creative entrepreneurs gathered once a year, and it was essentially part retreat, part conference, off the grid, and totally transformational and inspiring, and I have gained some of my favorite friends from that experience. I'm actually rocking my camp shirt right now in honor. Um, So today we have Emily Katz, who is a lot of things, wonderful to begin with, but other than being wonderful, she's also an artist, a world traveler, teacher, interior designer, creative consultant, public speaker, social media, phenomenon, and finally the owner of Modern Macrame. So Emily, welcome to the party. Thanks, Bailey. It's great to be here. So happy to have you. So that's a lot of stuff that is after your name. So obviously a lot of that's like your experiences, world traveler, speaker, teacher, that sort of thing. But walk us all the way back. What did little Emily want to be when she grew up? Oh, man. Well, when I was a little girl, I remember making this book uh, when I was in the first grade that was everyone had to make. And it said you know, your, who you were and if you had siblings and what your parents did and whatever. And, it, and we made this little book as a gift. And one of the things in it was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so my first grade self really wanted to be a rock and roll star. I could see that. And my, my like way that I was going to make money was that I was going to sell pins that had my name on it. <laughs> That was the the revenue plan. Yeah, you know, like a little like a little swag button or something. I mean, I, I, I still make sense. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I have yet to realize making these pins, but you know, it's it's a uh, it's a life dream of mine. I feel like you have to now. Now I do, yeah. Yeah, get you know. I feel like you can make those pretty simply, and now everywhere you go, you should sell them for like I don't know. What was your plan? Did you have a price tag for these pens? No, probably it was like five cents or something. Like that. <laughs> because as a child, you're like, I don't know, I think you need like $10 a year to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lunch money, candy like, money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You need enough for like a soda after school. So right, past exactly. first grade, after the <laughs> phase, what came next? Well, I in high school, I was really interested in poetry and music and art. And so I was continuing on my dreams of being a rock star, I guess. Um, I, I did a lot of poetry, a lot of poetry readings. I was part of a collective in Baltimore called the Mobtown Poets Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that. I did writing. I did music. Like I said, I had a band for a little while. What did you play or what, were, what was your role? I play, I, it was my band and I sang and played the auto harp and the guitar. Ooh, the auto harp. I don't even know what that is. It's an old Appalachian instrument that was really popular as a instrument to teach people how to play music because it's actually pretty easy. It's sort of like a harp, but you just press down on these buttons and strum and make chords. Can you still play? I can, yeah. Do you have one still? It's, I have two. 
<laughs> Amazing. <Yeah. laughs> I feel like that's a good back pocket talent. It is. It's a hidden talent for sure. Yeah. That's a good, like two truths and a lie little gym to bring out. Right. Exactly. So did you, I, ever end yeah. up, did you ever end up pursuing music in any professional capacity? I, in 2007, I recorded an album under a band called Love Menu was the name of my band. And I recorded an album in, in Washington, in, uh, in Olympia at a, um, what is the place called? I'm spacing it right now. But yeah, I had a record. It was called Limerence. I went on tour that didn't last very long. It was a, it was supposed to be a whole West coast tour and I, uh, a tree ended up falling on my car. Oh no. <laughs> Not while anyone was in it, but anyways, we stopped the tour and the, the whole music thing kind of petered out a little bit, but I still do play occasionally and, uh, it's still something that I really love to do. Amazing. Yeah. So what did, did you end up going off to college? If so, what did you go off there for? I went to art school in Baltimore. So I grew up in Portland, but I went to art school in Baltimore and I was there for a year and a half. And my focus in school was printmaking. Mm. Actually, I did painting and printmaking and sculpture a little bit, but it was um, mostly just the beginning of art school. I was only there for a year and a half before I decided to drop out. And what did you drop out for? Well, I just wasn't feeling super challenged. So I decided that I wanted to go travel around Europe and I left Baltimore and I went for two months to Europe, to Germany specifically where my stepmom's family is from. And I lived in Cologne with her sister and my uncle. And we, I learned German and I took care of their kids and took weekend trips to Berlin and Munich and Hung, hung around Paris and London and whatever it was. Sounds terrible. I was, I was 19. It was awesome. Uh, that's the, I feel like that's the 19 year old dream. Yeah. Just gallivant around Europe. And you're how lucky that you had family there that you could just crash with and kind of earn your keep. Yeah, it was great. It was, uh, it was a, they gave me spending money even to go travel. Uh, it was amazing. Ah, uh, that's very fortunate. Yeah. I felt extremely lucky. So when did you decide to come back? And when you were kind of making that decision for the next piece, what were you considering as your next move? Well, when I left to go to Europe, I had left a boyfriend behind on the East Coast and he had graduated college the, pretty much at the same time that I dropped out of school. And he was living in Pennsylvania with his parents, working at a coffee shop, and I was gallivanting around in Europe. And... At a certain point, I was like, okay, well, if this relationship is going to last, like, I have to come back. So he <laughs> you should probably really... be in the same city. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, it seems like probably it was an important part of, yeah, if I wanted that, I had to come back for it. So I did want that. And so I returned back to the East Coast and I, we had, we planned to move to Portland together, which is where I was raised. So we spent a little bit of time there and I didn't really know what I was doing. I had no idea, no concept of anything, but I ended up going to the Salvation Army one day and picking up some vintage button down shirts for him as a gift. And he had been sewing all of these crazy projects like camping and clothes and all these different things on his mom's old sewing machine in his basement while I was in Europe. And so the sewing machine was set up and I, 
went to it one day after buying these vintage shirts and I started embroidering these kind of whimsical drawings on the shirts. And then I presented them to him when he got home and his jaw hit the floor and he went to his closet and he pulled out a shirt that he had also drawn a like embroidered artwork essentially on earlier that week. And we were just like, what is this? That's so crazy. So what I ended up doing is we moved to Portland and we ended up starting a clothing line together. Mm. Was it literally like very much the same print? It was drawings. I mean, we had different drawing styles. I think I drew like hearts and skulls or something like that on mine. And, and I think his drawing was a little bit more like uh, abstract or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it had a similar quality. For sure. So that so that idea visited both of you. Basically. It did. Yeah. At the That's same time. Cool. Pre-Instagram. It was just a collective <laughs> unconscious. I think that definitely exists. And yeah. we just maybe we're less aware of it because we're so wrapped up in what we do now. But I think, you know, in Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, she talks about mm-hmm. that, how ideas and inspiration visit you. And if you don't do something about them, they will move on to somebody else. That's right. I totally buy that. So what was the clothing line called? It was called Bonnie Hart Clyde, and we originally wanted it to be Bonnie and Clyde as we were outlaws traveling around doing this thing, but it was taken as a web name, so we decided on Bonnie Hart Clyde, which I actually like a lot better. Oh, that's very cute. I like that a lot. And so how long did this last, and how did you guys know how to start a clothing company? We didn't. I mean, I was 19. I was was an art school dropout. He was, I think, yeah, 22 or 23 and had just graduated from college and with an art degree. And I don't know, we were creative with it. And we we ended up setting up on the street in Portland at this thing called Last Thursday. And we created, we, we set up our sale. We set all of the clothes up that we had made. We had made like 20 or 30 or something items filling this rack and they were like $28. Like I had no idea even what fashion really cost because all of my purchases had been thrift store shopping. So we, we set up and this guy came up to us that day and he asked if we had ever considered selling in Japan, which of course we had never considered because it was literally our first day that we had ever sold anything. Who does this happen to? (laughs) So he said that he, his really good friend was a distributor in Japan and he was coming to Portland like the following week. And did we want to meet him? And we were both uh, afterwards, we both sat down and we discussed it and said, you know, this is, this can't even be real. Like this, this is fake. This is a scam, right? Right. Who is this guy? And it wasn't a scam. And we ended up um, after being in business for the for a month, we ended up with distribution in Japan, and we were in all of the, the big stores there. How did you keep up with the manufacturing at this point? Well, all of the clothes when we first started were just vintage. So we were going to like the Goodwill bins where you could buy clothes by the pound. Oh my gosh. And digging through and spending all of our days digging through and washing and making sure everything was in good shape and just doing these embroidered drawings. And it was all just out of our heads, these like very whimsical drawings. And he and I were both doing them. And, and I mean, they took like 20 minutes per shirt to mm. do. And since it was something that was already made, 
there was so, it was like no overhead. I and mean, yeah. now looking back at it, I was like, that was a genius business because it didn't cost us anything. It was just him and I, we were sewing on these vintage clothes. But when we were selling to Japan, they actually were providing us with, uh, with shirts. So uh -huh. they were sending us shirts. We were drawing on them. We were sending them back and that was it. I mean, it was, it was how did they not look at, how did they not look at your designs and just rip them off? Like what kept them buying from you guys? At that point, there really wasn't anybody doing the kind of thing that we were doing. And now there are, I mean, it's been since, that was in 2003. So uh, it's been 15 years. Whoa. Crazy and awesome. Whoa. Yeah. Um, I graduated high school in 03. How, it's been 15 years. Holy shit. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> we digress. Yeah. So yeah, That's it's incredible. 15 years. So since. did you end up having to find any other retailers other than the Japanese ones? Yeah, we ended up selling all over the US. We did some trade shows. Um, I just learned as I went. And my partner and I, we ended up kind of, he was way more interested in the art and I was a little bit more interested in the business. And I also really wanted to be kind of a part of more of the social community and the fashion community and the fashion world. And so I ended up kind of going down the path more of of the, yeah, the business side and going to trade shows and just learning how to do it. I mean, there were, there were very few people in Portland, even at that time, who were taking their crafts to that place. It was a lot of craftspeople and designers and artists who were on, working on a really small scale, a lot of amazing designers, but they were all, they weren't thinking about how to be global. They weren't having random strangers approach them about selling in Japan, weird. I mean, maybe that too. <laughs> I mean, how, what, what magic that must have felt like just your first setup basically. And there's just this amazing, incredible, that just doesn't happen. That's so cool. It was, yeah, it was really, it was something. And so how long did you ride that train for? So Sean and I did Bonnie Hart Clyde together for, I think until the end of 2006. Okay. So that's Actually, a good run. Yeah. So we did it for about three years and he, uh, he ended up leaving the company probably in 2005, the beginning of 2005. So I ran it by myself from 2005 to 2006 and I had some employees. And at that point we, it grew from being a, a complete custom designed line. So I worked with a friend in LA who had a clothing brand called Porridge. Her name's Laura and she actually has a shop called the Odell's and it's grown and it's gotten, it's really cool to have seen her because she stayed on that one course and now they sell an anthropology by even giving me some of her patterns. She was like, here, just take this t-shirt design that I already designed and you can do your drawings on it. And she set me up with the factory and it was amazing. I had all of my garments manufactured in Los Angeles oh, that's awesome. and it was all cut and sew. And, um, she helped me with some of the basic beginning patterns. And then I designed my own pieces as well. They were very basic skirts, a couple jackets, t-shirts, a couple of button downs. And yeah, we, I made catalogs. I organized the photo shoot. I did all of the web design. I designed all of the drawings. And then those drawings were then made into a lookbook and a catalog, which then were sold at these trade shows around in New York and LA and Las Vegas. And, um, and yeah, so I had a lot of stockists. So you were just figuring this out as you went? Just figuring it out. Mm -hmm. 
And it sounds like she gave you a nice little boost in her way. Did you have anybody else along the way that kind of showed you the ropes or took you under their wing? Not really. I felt like I did a lot of it on my own. I mean, I, I, there was a lot of amazing, there were a lot of amazing and still are a lot of amazing fashion designers in Portland, but like I said, they were all kind of doing it on their own as well. And, and I didn't know anybody that was doing fashion in that way of like going to the trade shows. And I did meet another woman at one of these street fairs who, um, her name's Tracy Forrest and she's now a sales rep, but at the time she really wanted to open a store. And I was like, Tracy, there's so many stores in Portland. What we need is representation for independent designers. So she actually ended up coming along and sort of working for me. She had been in the liquor industry for a long time as a sales rep. And so she ended up kind of getting her foot in the door as doing sales and she's been doing it for, yeah, I mean, 14 years now. Wow. So uh, it was kind of cool because in a way I got to help her on her path, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. But we got to help each other. No, that's, I mean, that's the best scenario is when you're coming up with somebody and you're figuring it out together and you're able to support one another and bounce ideas off each other and a lot of times with our careers, I think it takes somebody else telling us what we would be good at, even if we instinctually know. It yeah. just helps to have somebody on the outside saying, well, you know, this is special about you. Like you might think everybody can do this, but it's not the case. We often undervalue our skills and we think, oh, well, if we can do it, anybody can do it. It's not usually true. That's true. Yeah. So what happened next after 2006? I mean, I know what happened in the economy. (laughs) Most of us in some capacity. So yeah, what was your version of the Great Recession? Well, so actually um, at the end of 2006, my partner who I started Bonnie Hurt Clyde with and I split up and I started my own line of women's wear under my own name. So I did, it was a, yeah, eco-friendly line. It was 2007 to 2009 was kind of the, the age of this line. And it was one of the first sustainable clothing lines out there. What? So I did, I was one of the first designers to be working with organic cotton and hemp and soy and bamboo. And it was a very like work casual, but stylish line. It was a lot of dresses that were really like super comfortable. They all had pockets. Very flattering. I mean, it's crazy because now I see a lot of the things that I was designing now, Mm. you know, but again, it's like been almost 10 years. So, uh, and it was hard doing that line. I did it by myself. I didn't have any funding. I mean, I was like using credit cards and I had a small studio in Portland and at, at a, I was actually manufacturing all of the garments in Portland. So uh, I was designing and sewing all of the patterns and the samples and hand dyeing everything in my kitchen and in my <laughs> bathtub. And, you know, it was like one, I remember one day going to a photo shoot and the garment was still just like a little bit wet because it had been finished <laughs> the night before. So, yeah, I mean, I did that line under Emily Katz for two years and uh, Fred Siegel picked it up like after, I don't know, a month of it being out. I mean, it was just one of those things where think it like, a, I don't know, like the texture of, of, what the, of what people wanted somehow was aligned with what I was doing. 
How did you even, what was your reason, I guess? I mean, I understand why do a sustainable eco-friendly line, but you know, what, what made you take that step? And I guess that risk, because if it hadn't started to have been done yet, I'm sure there were a lot of questions of like, are people even going to want to buy this? Was it just based on what you wanted and the gap that you saw in the market? That was where the initial idea came from. I was looking around at clothing and thinking how, like, okay, for one, I couldn't afford most of what was out there that I did like. So I figured, okay, well, I'll make it and then I can wear it. Mm -hmm. um, that was one thing. But also, yeah, what I wanted wasn't out there. So I, it was a very small capsule collection. I mean, I think the first season there were maybe only like 12 pieces or something in a few different colorways. And I had rain jackets and that was another thing. And growing up in Portland where it rains a lot in the winter and in the spring and in the fall, <laughs> um, there, it was in the late 2000s, it was still just like Birkenstocks and Patagonia and North Face and Columbia Sportswear. And like, that's fine Very for all the people that we have. And I wanted something stylish. So it was really, yes, it was driven very much by my desire to have something unique and special and, um, yeah, and, and, and health con world conscious, health conscious, eco conscious. Yeah. And so when you were coming to the end of that line, what was, what was your reason for switching? What was your reason for kind of shutting down that chapter? So like you mentioned before about the economy, uh, the economy crashed around that time and a lot of the stores that I had sold to closed. Mm. I had a big order out to a big retailer and they couldn't accept all of it. Mm. And uh, I had borrowed money from friends. I had borrowed money from credit cards uh, and I owed a lot of money and I couldn't make my payments. And so I went bankrupt Mm. in 2009 and, um, and you're what like 25 26 at this point? I was 27 it was the best thing that I ever did <laughs> why well it took me so long to get there like I I was struggling my business had been struggling for I mean I like I said it was from 2007 to 2009 and really I was still kind of in business until 2010 but I was struggling financially for a long time in that business. I didn't really know that it, how expensive it was going to be. And, I, and a lot of the retailers were still kind of hesitant about it, even though I was like, this is important. This is the direction that we should be going in. I mean, now you see big retailers are, are adopting eco lines, like H&M has an eco line and whatever, I mean, yeah, like 10 years later, they're on yeah, board. Exactly. But, but it took a long time and that material cost a lot more and, and it was a huge investment and, and I wanted to do it a certain way and I didn't know enough about overhead to be building it into my prices. And besides that, the fact that all of these stores closed. Anyway, why was it the best decision that I made? I mean, and why do I, why do I wish that I had done it earlier? I mean, because... I think the reason for that is because I struggled for so long and as soon, and I felt sick from it. I mean, every day I would have phone calls that I, you know, I would never answer my phone. I was afraid of my phone. It was super stressful and I wasn't productive. And I, I knew at that time that it wasn't, it wasn't what I really wanted to pursue. 
Like I loved fashion. I still totally love fashion, but I knew that it wasn't going to get me the life that I wanted. Which was what? Which was more freedom, which was travel, which was connecting with people. And don't get me wrong. I have some amazing stories of people telling me that they bought one of my dresses and they wore it to an interview and the woman interviewing them had all these great comments to say about it. And like, she got the job and felt confident and, you know, it hangs in her closet and reminds her of that every day, which is awesome. But I wanted to make a bigger difference in the way that people look at the world. And I still do. Those things haven't changed. Uh, so that, that was, those were some of my goals. And, um, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to really get to where I wanted with, with the clothing line. Yeah. I mean, throughout this entire time with Bonnie Hart Clyde and then your own line, were you, did you have to take side jobs? Were you making enough to skirt by? How are you living at this point? Well, when Sean and I started Bonnie Hart Clyde, we lived in, well, we moved from Pennsylvania to Portland. We lived in his parents' basement and then my parents' basement. You know, I'm 19 years old. So, and then we got our first apartment together and it was actually an art gallery in downtown Portland that was a live workspace. And we paid $900 a month in Chinatown for this beautiful gallery. And it was a it was part of the first Thursday art walk. So every first Thursday, hundreds of people came in and we had a built-in store essentially. So it was $900 a month. We had no overhead. I mean, you know, it was like, I think that year we literally made like $15,000 between the two of us. And that was all that we needed. Yeah. That would have been plenty at that point. That was all we needed. I mean, we somehow paid our rent and then we went to the grocery store and cooked at home and we lived, we lived very simple lives. Mm. We lived very, very simply. And I was really happy then. I mean, it's something that I always try to look back to, to remember how little we actually need to be happy. Oh man, our baseline needs are very low. We all just forget that. And then, you know, we always fall into the trap too. The more you make, the more you think you need, and then you need to make more to keep, but yeah, it's this ugly circle. And in reality, my favorite saying is we just need to sleep indoors and eat pretty regularly. And that's really about it. Yeah. Yeah. So what, when you came to the decision for the bankruptcy, you know, did you close down the line entirely? Was that chapter completely shut at that point or did you keep it open at all? What was, what was that transition like? I closed down the line, but I always knew that I would still do fashion on some level or I always kind of wanted to. And, um, I did a couple of events with, I had a, I had a runway show in 2011 that was, well, okay. So I'm jumping ahead. So I started working on my art again. Um, I took a step back. Um, I closed the line. I got a job at the Ace Hotel in Portland and the restaurant attached to it called Clyde Common. And I like was a food runner. It was the lowest, you know, front of the house job on, that you could get. Great exercise any, though. It was great exercise. <laughs> I was a total novice. I didn't know anything. I had to ask people every, I had to learn from scratch and it was amazing. And I met all of these incredible food people and 
and I did catering events there and parties and got to see sort of the side, this glamorous side of the event production um, and got really interested in that as well. Um, but so I was doing that. That was really the first time that I had a, a real job. Yeah, working for somebody else. Working for somebody else. And wow, at like 27, 28? Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, I had jobs here and there. I worked at a movie theater when I was in college. And, you know, but yeah, for the most part, I was, I was self-sufficient during that time. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so fashion closed. And then during that time, while I was working at the restaurant, I was working on art and music. And, and, um, and I, had a, I had this art show yeah, where I designed these like high-end gowns and dresses and outfits that had gemstones sewn into them with like embroidery and I still have a lot of those pieces in my closet. I was say, was that just more for display or to sell? Well I had I had the intention of making a collection out of it. I have really beautiful photography of everything and and the show was an art show of my embroidered artwork that was all on the sort of like tulle, like a sheer kind of netting fabric that had all of these layers and it was inspired by my friend who's a poet who wrote all of these beautiful poems about her dreams and it was a really incredible show so the art show it was a solo art show and then the gallery hosted the fashion show as well so people came and stood in the gallery surrounded by my artwork and watched this runway show happen and I mean it was it was in 2011 in November and so many elements came together to create the most beautiful night. And I think it was the first time that I had done something that really, really brought tears to my eyes. Mm. That's amazing. Just from the pride and joy of having created something with so many incredible women too, that, uh, that was really, really amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, that's got to feel, it sounds like it was a very multimedia approach too. You know, yeah. not just one form of art is based on art. Your art was woven into dresses. There was, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very cool, immersive experience, I can imagine. Yeah. And so now you said before you recorded the album in 2013? No, we recorded the album in 2000, let's see, I think that was earlier, 2009? Might have been 2000, so, 2008. So you're, 2000. you're definitely a multi-passionate, without question. <laughs> You've got a lot of things that I think you're good at and interested in. And it's, it's interesting to see how they get woven together and mm -hmm. how, I mean, it sounds like your through line for sure is the need to be creative and to express yourself and to create beautiful things in some capacity or another. Um, what other things were going on at this time? We haven't even gotten to the macrame story. <laughs> I'm excited to figure out when that even happens because that's where I know your story from. Right. So at what point is that starting to come into the picture and when you're, you know, getting, I guess, kind of into the real world again with food running and all of that, what's your mindset at that point? What is your, you know, are you starting to run through your mind like, okay, what is my career? What does this look like? Or are you just taking things more day by day and kind of as they come? Well, I was really interested in in kind of working on an art career, actually. Uh, and I had a piece that I entered into a juried show at an art gallery in Portland, the pretty prestigious art gallery here. And I had, and it was accepted and it was in this group show. And so while I was working and doing the food running and the events and 
you know, still kind of like tinkering with music and focusing on art in a lot of ways. Um, I was, yeah, I, I, I was just kind of playing around. I mean, I was, I was single for the first time in a long time too. And I was just like looking for whatever was going to come my way, but I had no idea what it was going to be because I had put all of myself into these clothing lines for so many years when I was young and I was really focused on all of the stuff that I was doing and I didn't have a lot of time to play. So I spent a lot of time just playing and like going and seeing music and dancing and not really, not really thinking too, too much about what I was doing with my life. But at the same time, I knew that it was something that was really important. I was really just looking for what the next thing was. I was working at the restaurant and doing all these catering events, et cetera. And I ended up getting a job working for my dad doing, uh, doing art direction for his company. And he has a healing gemstone company and it won a lot of awards in the nineties, but it had, it really needed to get into the new generation. And so he he hired me to help with that. And I had been doing more event styling and, you know, I've always been interested in interiors to add on to my many layers of things that I do. And so I really focused all of my time working for my dad doing this um, art direction and creative direction for his brand. And that was in October of 2012. And in December of 2012, I actually, I got in a car accident and um, it was, it was not something that, you know, anyone ever expects and kind of like the bankruptcy in a weird way. It was actually sort of a weird blessing. Um, it really caused me to slow down. Um, I was rear-ended and had a pretty bad concussion. And anyways, um, I ended up, because I was working for my dad, I had a lot of flexibility, but it took me a year really of a lot of body work and a lot of healthcare to recover, mostly. Um, and I got a little bit of a settlement out of it, which um, which I saved for a long time until this year. <laughs> um, but I, uh, yeah, so I, I had to slow down and I was working for my dad and I was really thinking about my life, thinking about what I wanted to do beyond this. I knew that I was helping with this company that had helped raise me, which was important and meaningful and valuable. And at the same time, I was looking for more. And I didn't know what that more was going to be. And I, yeah, I was just kind of plugging along in a lot of ways. And my dad is an entrepreneur and he's, he's mostly been focused on this healing gem business, but he had other businesses before. And he always said to me, you know, when you're, when you know, like when you have your passion and it, it, you'll just jump out of bed at eight in the morning, every morning, and you'll just get right to it. And I was like, well, I'm not really a morning person. So <laughs> I don't know if that's what ever. do you know? Yeah, what do you know? So anyways, I yeah, that was uh that I definitely had that drive and desire for something bigger. And so as you were healing from this car accident and you at this point are with your now fiance Adam, you were helping him, you know, design the interior of his house and working on that. So was that kind of it sounds like everything that you've loved and that you've done has all had that through line of an artistic creative flair to it. So as you guys were say working on his house, kind of were you looking at that as a potential 
thing that you might do going forward? Was that even referring to you? No, I never was. I mean, I've always been a nester. I I have a cancer moon. And so we're supposedly, I don't know that much about astrology, but we're really into the home and nesting and being homebodies. And, and uh, I've always really created a lot of sacred space around my home. So, and beautiful space. And I just like love coming home. I mean, I love traveling, but I love coming home. Yeah. And so yeah, I mean, when Adam, when I moved in with Adam in 2011, which was before the car accident, um, he, he had this beautiful house that he and his dad had remodeled from the ground up. And it had a lot of kind of like unfinished touches that still needed to be made. And his ex helped him with a lot of the beginning of it. And there's some beautiful things that I can't even take credit for that <laughs> I do take credit for that I'm sure she would like to take credit for. <laughs> You know, it's kind of hard to... That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. But anyways, um, I love the house. And it was one of the things that made me fall extra in love with him was seeing his eye and seeing what he had, what it was before and what it turned into is just, I mean, it's, an, it's amazing. It's, I mean... The he, before photos are insane. I would love to see them. I love before and afters with interiors. Like yeah. whenever I watch HGTV, I wait for the last like 10 minutes of the show because I don't really care how they do it. I just want to see the before <laughs> and after. <laughs> Give me the instant gratification. I don't want to know like, it, also it always makes me want to redesign a house and I have none of those skills. So it's better if I just watch the before and after. That's so funny. I'm, I, I'm with you on that yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, and so at what point did you get to the spot where you were like, okay, working for my dad is not going to do it for me forever. Like when did macrame enter your life? So I was working for my dad and Adam and I had, Adam had invited me, uh, to, uh, a wedding on the East coast to one of his friend's weddings. And we were doing kind of like an East coast tour and we went to Baltimore where the wedding was. And my mom lives in the East Coast. She lives in Connecticut. And she invited us to go visit her. Well, my mom and my dad divorced when I was nine years old. And she pretty much split the scene and wasn't really part of my life for most of my life. So it was kind of a big deal for her to invite us to come and stay for four days at her oh, house. That's intimidating. Yeah. And I, and she started a whole new family, like without telling us. And I mean, she's, she has, she she had done some things that were really hurtful and I had not forgiven her. And I was really unsure about what it was going to be like to go and spend this time with her. And anyway, so I found out pretty recently around that time that she had made macrame in the seventies. And I had just started seeing macrame around there's a there was a portland based artist named sally england actually who um had kind of started the renaissance of macrame in a way she was in art school here and she was using macrame as her medium for her artwork and i had seen some of it at this interior design store in portland and i was like that's really cool but it was just in the back of my mind and um So Adam and I have over a hundred plants in our house and we have a couple of vintage macrame plant hangers, but I kind of wanted to learn how to make my own. So when I found out that my mom had made macrame plant hangers in the seventies, 
And she sold them at the salon that her mom used to go to. And she raised money and bought a guitar and who knows what else with that money. Um, and she, so I was like, okay, well, my mom used to make macrame and maybe she can teach me. Mm, be a good bonding uh, experience. Yeah, it could be a good bonding experience. We could connect over this craft and maybe it'll just make the time that we're spending with her a little bit easier. Mm-hmm or nicer. I don't know. I was just so nervous about the whole experience. Yeah. Four days is a lot to spend with somebody that you really haven't seen or connected with in nearly a decade. I mean, no more than a decade, 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. So it was almost like sometimes you just need to be busy, like have something to do with your hands instead of making awkward conversations. So that was exactly, that was smart. Yeah. So she agreed. And when we went to Connecticut, we went and tried to find all of the materials for making our plant hangers. And uh, that was one of the hardest parts, actually. It was really difficult to find the rope that I wanted and the rings that I wanted and the beads and everything. And we found a couple of things that we used like old clothesline and some jute that we found at a craft store and went back to her place. And Turns out she has like an entire wardrobe full of beads and yarn and craft supplies and all very neatly organized. And uh, she taught me how to make macrame in her kitchen. And my sisters were there. She has two kids um, with another guy. I have have other siblings as well, but my half sisters were there and Adam was there playing the guitar that that we, that she had bought from macrame in the seventies. And that's cool. And yeah, we just had this amazing moment of making plant hangers together. And it was never in my mind was I like, this is my thing. It was just this special reconnecting with my mom. So when did it, when did you get tipped off that this could be a thing? So that was in 2013. And um, in the spring of 2013, I'm pretty sure I get my, this is like one of my dates that I always get confused because it might have been 2012 but we'll it blame I, it on we'll blame it on the car accident yeah sure it's the car, yeah exactly i just i would i would use memory. that as a crutch big time every time Great. i, like, I yeah. have money i'm sorry it's the car accident i don't recall you saying that yeah i definitely use it sometimes <laughs> um so it was over a year later i had made the plant hanger we hung it up in our guest bathroom She gave me the one that she made. We hung them together. We put plants in them. We watered the plants. But that was like the maximum macrame that was in my life. You know, I didn't really even make very many more. I made one or two for friends for their birthdays, and that was it. So then in October of 2013, there was a Japanese magazine that came to Portland to do a feature on DIY interior design. And... uh, Adam and I, like I was saying, um, excuse me, we have done all of these renovations on our house. And uh, so they found out about the design that we had done through a woman in Portland and I don't know, that somehow connected us to them. And so they came to do a feature on the DIY interior design of our house. So they're walking through the house and they're looking at everything. And we have a lot of weird kind of like wabi-sabi elements to our house from, and very handmade things from hands screen printed toe kicks that go up the stairs to like shelves coming proud of the windows. So plants can hang right in front of the window and 
all of these different details that are very handmade and kind of unique looking and they were really curious about our design aesthetic and so they were taking pictures and they were interviewing us and they got upstairs to the guest bathroom where these plant hangers lived and the woman who was leading the interview was like where did you get these macrame plant hangers from and I was going in to tell them the story about my mom and reconnecting with them. And they were like, cool, that's awesome. But like, where do we get them? Yeah. And so I was like, I don't know. I mean, a thrift store or a flea market or something. And I didn't really have an answer for them. And at, the mo- at that moment, I wasn't thinking, well, I should just sell them to you guys. Like, how many do you need? Uh, so they left. And that night I was like, kind of feel like I missed out on an opportunity here. And again, I'm so glad that I didn't just try to sell them plate hangers. Instead, I asked if they were free the next day. And they came back over and I taught my very first macrame workshop to Japanese magazine editors in my living room. What made you do that versus selling them one? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, the woman... Uh, who was running, who was the kind of the art director of that shoot in particular and who was interviewing us is a craft and DIY person in Japan. She Mm -hmm. has books about DIY, mostly about interiors and some craft. And I don't know, I just felt like the right thing to do. I can't tell you, I didn't, I wasn't sitting down thinking, should I sell them? Should I do it? It wasn't a calculated decision. No, I didn't charge them for it. You know, it was just like, I didn't even charge them for materials. It was just something that I had to do. Mm-hmm. And then people started asking about it. Did they and write about it in the magazine? Did they include they that? They did. They did. They included it in the magazine. There's a, I had a full page spread. I think we had a couple of pages of the spread in this magazine, actually, of the house. And the photographer holding up his little macrame that he made. It was really, it was really a special experience. So did people start to learn about Emily Katz, the macrame workshop leader from that? Or did you just start telling people you were doing it? Well, I had started telling people I was doing it. And also a lot of it came through Instagram. And so I had started my Instagram account in August of 2011. Uh, I was about to drive to LA. I had bought this big yellow conversion van and I was like recently single again (laughs) and had moved out of my apartment that was this little cabin in the backyard of someone's house and got in the van and was gonna drive to LA. And anyways, I, I uh, I had a music festival to go to before my trip. I ended up meeting Adam at the music festival. Never made it to Los Angeles. The car broke down like pretty quickly after that, which I probably would have never even gotten to LA had I tried. <laughs> um, you weren't supposed to. I wasn't supposed to, but right at that, anyway, that's the first photo that I ever took of my, on my Instagram is this bright yellow conversion van that my, all my travel dreams were wrapped up in. <laughs> at the travel time. dreams at never the time. to be realized at the time. Mm-hmm. At the time, yeah. So I, um, I started from there, and because I had done fashion and music and art, I had started with 
a pretty nice size following on Instagram. I think I had like 3000 followers just based on people that I knew or people who knew me, like actually had met me in person, you know, or were fans from owning pieces of my clothing or something. So my network was small, but it was very dedicated, you know? And so I just started, you know, as we all were, eight years ago posting or seven six I guess it was six years ago posting on Instagram way more casually than we all probably do now Uh, but I just started posting about my workshops and that I wanted to do them and did anybody want to do it and sent out emails to people on my emailing list that were just my email list was like my friend group you know right (laughs) Um, I did have an email list from fashion days and stuff but yeah so we my I partnered with a friend who did these healthy organic lunches in my kitchen and we sold out all of our first workshops and from there I was just like hey this is a thing and uh, and in February of 2014 Instagram selected me as a featured and suggested user and I went from 3,000 to 30,000 whoa And at that point I was like, well, maybe I can take this on the road because I had people from all over the country asking, Hey, will you teach me macrame? Like I want to learn macrame too. So I went on my first ever macrame tour down the West coast. I did stops in San Francisco. I went to LA and I did four different workshops at urban outfitters locations there. And uh, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. How did you end up at urban outfitters? A friend of mine, a friend of a friend knew somebody who was high up in the company there and she hooked it up for me. I mean, which is important to note, right? Because I know anytime I listen to stories like this, it's like, but whoa, 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 hold on. You went from like making macrame with your mom for fun (laughs) to not make things awkward to how are you teaching in Urban Outfitters? And the answer is usually somebody hooked it up, right? Like somebody in your community connected you to somebody who connected you to somebody that was like, yeah, okay, you can come teach here. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. It was just a friend. Yeah. I asked a friend who asked her friend who connected me to the right person. And, and, uh, and yeah, my first stop was in Malibu and I showed up and they had no idea I was coming. Oh God. And only one person had signed up for my class. And I was just like, I think that's important to say too, because it comes up all the time with people starting to teach workshops. Everybody thinks like, because they've been thinking about it and planning it and putting all this time and love and attention into it for however long. And then they finally decide to teach one and then nobody comes and they think it's, they suck and nobody cares. And there are so many other variables that go into why people do or do not sign up for workshops and events and things like that. So I'm glad you didn't throw in the towel after that Malibu bust. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the truth is, is that that woman who did come to that class, she had driven for two hours to get there and she had had a babysitter scheduled for two weeks. She was so excited about it. And she really wanted to teach her daughter and have a party for her six year old birthday party, like oh. throw a six, six year old birthday party. Yeah. And, um, so she got a hell of a one-on-one. She got a one-on-one. We ate all the snacks. 
And it was amazing because I was in Malibu and the class ended up being a lot shorter because it was just one person and I got off early in time to go watch the sunset with some new friends on the beach. No, it was awesome. It was awesome. And so fast forward to today, you know, your entire business is macrame, right? At this point. Yeah. I mean, I, for the most part, yes. Modern macrame is a company that sells DIY materials mostly to support macrame artists and craftspeople, people who are doing jewelry and fashion and wall hangings and plant hangers and you name it, installations. So the company really has evolved to supply materials because one of the things that I struggled with when I was starting was finding the right materials. So Mm. that's sort of become my mission. We're doing materials and also inspiration in the form of more tutorials that are on their way and yeah, content essentially. Uh, I also wrote a book that's coming out in May, on May 15th, the book comes out on 10 speed press and it's also called modern macrame. And that book is 33 projects, essentially all DIYs, but photographed in really beautiful homes. So it feels a little bit like an interiors book, but it also reads like a DIY book. It's a good coffee table book. It's a great coffee table book. It's, I got my advanced copy and it is beautiful. Oh, I can't wait. So modern Mac, and then I also still teach workshops. And so yeah, modern macrame is definitely, I mean, it's the main, it's the main thing. I mean, Adam and I designed a restaurant last year that won a restaurant of the award a year, a restaurant of the year award. No big deal. Um, Adam so, will yeah. definitely be on season two of the Bailey Hancock show, by the way. He doesn't yeah. know it yet. He's also a hell of a multi-passionate, just curious human being. And I love him for that. He is amazing. He's the best. Uh, people person, for sure. Yeah. He's also got great hair. He does. <laughs> so tell us about this tour that you're about to go on. So it's so cool because, you know, when I'm going back and telling these little bits of my story where I kind of quit fashion because I wanted to travel. I dropped out of art school because I wanted to travel. I quit fashion because I really wanted to travel more. I was about to travel down to California on this tour. I was on a music tour when my car got crashed into it was kind of crazy it was like so many things leading up to this crazy tour that I'm about to embark on in May have been like they haven't stopped me from wanting to do it (laughs) you know I definitely feel sometimes like okay well maybe it was a sign (laughs) well maybe it wasn't time yet it was time yet. It wasn't time you yet. You had other and stuff now, you needed to do first. So many other things. So many other things. Yeah, it's true. So I'm about to embark on this tour, and it's a three-month tour supporting my book, my upcoming book launch. And I'm traveling with this woman, Caitlin, from Thread Caravan, which is an amazing organization that takes creatives and anybody, really. It's a, it's a tourism mostly in art and food. And a lot of the retreats are based in Mexico and Guatemala and they're like fiber art based. Mm. And they're amazing. I went to one in Oaxaca uh, and learned how to weave a rug, which was awesome. And we connected and she's coming on the tour as a collaborator and 
support, which I just am so grateful for. So essentially we're going to 45 cities around the United States in three months and we're popping up in boutiques and event spaces and people's homes occasionally and doing workshops as well as book signings and some special launch parties and it's yeah so basically really are you going to tour. <laughs> yeah i'm i still my mind is still blown by the number of cities you're doing in 3 months i I just, I, I'm going to have to check on you every couple of weeks. <laughs> you're still breathing and you're eating and you're sleeping. But I mean, what an exciting thing, because I have to imagine a lot of the people that have connected with you online have never met you in person and who maybe have bought your materials and done macrame on their own, but never attended a live workshop. So this will be such a cool opportunity for you to scratch that itch that you said you've had since 19 of wanting to not only travel, but connect with people and see your work make a difference. And I mean, it's just going to be an incredible situation for you. I have to imagine and such a cool professional moment. So yeah, so 45 cities. So are you pretty much going to end up in every major US city for the most part? Or are you doing a particular yeah. route? We're doing a whole we're So we're doing a driving tour. And we're not going to every single city in the US. Oh, God, <laughs> unfortunately. <no. laughs> But we're starting in Portland, we're driving down the West Coast, we're doing the Southwest, Texas, the South, up through sort of, yeah, the South and uh, up to the Northeast, and then kind of back down across, we're going all over 45 cities. It's, so is it safe yeah. to say that there will be a stop within plus or minus three hours of pretty much everywhere in the U.S.? Pretty close, pretty close. Yeah, I mean, we're we're hitting most major metropolitan areas for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. So we will be sure to link to this tour in the show notes. And I mean, I've taken one of Emily's workshops at camp and I still have my macrame piece hanging in my dining room. And I still, it's one of the proudest things I've created artistically because I, I, I consider myself a creative person, but I've certainly never... I haven't found a medium I think that I am naturally inclined to be good at and something that's really stuck with me that's like called to me. But when I did macrame for the first time, it was such a meditative, relaxing practice that, and you end up with this beautiful physical manifestation of this meditation, which is kind of unlike anything else. And it's just a really beautiful final piece to have to show for this you know, time you've given yourself to use your hands and unwind and you really don't have to use your brain very much to do it, which is kind of nice because there's few things that you don't have to use your brain for <laughs> to create. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really true. And I love thinking about it also as a little bit of a time capsule. So whatever you were thinking of in that time of your life or, you know, you've created something and your memories get to go into it. Mm, that's a cool way to think of it. And can you weave little things into your macrame as well? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There's really no rules. I mean, there's rules and then there's rules. <laughs> <laughs> I'm know. sure you have to not the same way, but maybe the way that you go about it can be a little creative. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think? Do you think that macrame is going to be your thing for the foreseeable future? I know it's hard to really tell, but... Yeah, it is hard to tell. I mean, it's interesting because I look at my 20s and... Fashion was very much the fashion and art and music. Who am I kidding? 
and food, et cetera. But fashion was the driving business force behind what I was doing in my 20s. In my 30s, I mean, this company has been in business really for, I mean, three years, give or take. And, you know, I'm at the middle of my 30s thinking, okay, now, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing right now, mostly. I'm focusing on selling rope and materials and connecting with people. And I'm focusing on, you know, creating this business and growing this business. So, you know, my gut tells me that by the time I'm 40, I'll probably be doing something different. Uh, I'm really excited about doing interiors and Adam and I are dreaming up more travel more nomadic lifestyles together at some point. I think my, my real dream would be able to not be tied to a location at all, but to location have, independent entrepreneurship. That's what I want. That's what I want. You yeah, can have it. I think I, can, I think I, I, I'm pretty sure that something magical will show up for me. I whether have it's out. <laughs> If it's going to happen to anybody, it's going to happen to Emily Katz. Oh, Bailey, thanks. I'm, yeah, I mean. Well, there are certain people that just yeah. invite magic and synchronicity and serendipity into their lives. And your career has proven that it can be done and that you don't have to have all the answers and you don't have to know all of the steps in order to make it work. And that's pretty exciting. So I'm excited to keep watching you do all the magical things that you do. Oh, thank you. And everybody will link in the show notes to the Emily's tour so that you can hopefully find a spot near you. And if you can, you definitely 100% should go. So highly recommend Emily and everything this magical person does. So mm. thank you for being here, Emily, and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Bailey. All right, everybody. See you next time.